0: Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I'm from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are the world's number one automotive podcast. That's right. We're a storytelling show. This week, it's part three of our history of Mazda. Last week, we talked about the rotary engine and how they started a little bit of racing. This week, they got a lot more serious with it. They needed to make a big splash in the world stage. They decided to go to Le Mans over there in France and prove that they could keep up with the Europeans and the Americans. They did have a hard time with it, though. It's very intriguing. The rotary engine we talked about last week had some challenges. This is for the real Mazda heads and anybody who's curious about automotive history in general. Find it wherever you get your podcasts, Pass Gas. I'll see you there. Weeks after the French surrender to the oncoming storm of Nazi forces, a young man named Zora Arkes-Duntov hid in the back room of a brothel with his brother in the port city of Bordeaux. They knew they were wanted men, given that they were not only Jews born in Belgium, but also because they were both members of the French Air Force. Zora had secured exit visas to the United States for his wife and family as Nazi tanks rolled through the French countryside. The Arcus-Duntov family was ready to run like hell, but the only problem was Zora's wife, Elfie. She was still working in Paris, and Nazis were descending on the city. Elfie, a ballet dancer, packed all of her things into her tiny MG and sped off in the middle of the night to avoid capture. As she raced the 375 miles from Paris to Bordeaux in the drop-top sports car, Nazis were right on her tail in their wagons. But the 1250cc motor on the MG used all 54 horsepower to keep Elfie safe and return her to the arms of Zora. We may never know if she was upset that Zora was hunkered down in a brothel while she was in a multiple hundred mile car chase with literal Nazis, but a few days later the two boarded a ship to Portugal, which eventually took them right into the loving embrace of America. It was there that Zora Arkus Duntov was fated to become the legend we all know him as today, the father of the Corvette. But how did Zora get that title? Today on Pass Gas, we're going to talk about the origins of the Corvette, how it became such an icon, here's a hint, Zora helped a ton, and why it took Chevy 60 years to release a mid-engine model. This is Pass Gas. Pass
1: Gas Podcast, it's about cars, it's not about ports. That was an exciting intro. It's like a movie, dude.
2: I thought you were going to say, why it took Chevy 60 years?
0: (laughs) Why it took Chevy 60 years to hunt for the Red October. (laughs) We're just talking nonsense now, as usual. Got to get that energy up, dude. Yeah. Woo. Ha. (laughs) That's me getting my energy up. That's getting your yeah yes out. Oh yeah, <laughs> we've uh, we've started recording at 9 a.m. as uh, as opposed to our usual <clears> 10 a.m. and I do think it's 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 uh, it's a little harder to get rolling in the morning. Although we it does give us a lot more time later in the day, so it's a it's a bit of a trade off. Well, Joe anyway, have been
1: up since four doing calisthenics yes. and brain exercises. I don't know, did you sleep in today or something?
0: I did hit that sleep in today. Uh, That's pretty up.
1: irresponsible of you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> if
2: you want to be a fast track exec, you got to start getting up at four and doing calisthenics, <laughs> calisthenics and brain exercises. And brain
1: exercises.
2: Yeah. I did 1,001 push-ups in front of a mirror. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, and didn't break eye contact with myself. How
0: Patrick Bateman of you.
1: <laughs> More like Gary Vee, my hero. <laughs>
0: I do that? like that there's this weird kind of thing where uh, waking up early is attack as some sort of like moral booster, you know? Some sort of like oh yeah, he gets up early. Therefore he uh he's doing well for himself or he's 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 on top of it.
1: Yeah, what if he just gets drunk till what if he yeah. just gets drunk till seven PM and passes out? And <laughs> then, like wakes up at four just like uh uh, yeah, uh I literally uh, can't uh,
0: sleep past four. <laughs> Welcome back to past Gaps, everybody. I'm Nolan Sykes, joined as always by one, Joe Weber. Keep it. Yeah. Whoa, with uh, some Doppler effect. That was cool. And James Pumphrey.
1: Ah, you think darkness is your ally? You dark adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. I didn't see the light until I was already a man. By then, it was nothing to me but blinding.
0: <laughs> wow what a, a catchphrase <laughs> what a catchphrase man yeah that's really good i'm gonna put it yeah. on a shirt yeah <laughs> yeah wow i think people would really uh love that in in
1: 2013 <laughs> Yep. <laughs> i'm uh in talks with dc and uh no fear <laughs> Oh which is really just a dream collab for me
0: wow that really that's awesome it's you should so make shirts party.
2: with the Joker's face on it and Bane quotes. Well,
1: I have a, I have, uh, it's a big deal that I'm big drop. I'm doing with DC. Um, I have an, uh the Joker Osiris skate shoe Whoa. coming out too.
2: It has like the lipstick on the toe cap. <laughs> yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. On the back it says, "Why so serious?" R. I. P. King, 1976
0: uh, to 2012. That's a um... That's a Osiris D three, the big ass mm-hmm. big ass yeah. shoe. Oh, I love that. Dude, a Joker themed D three would actually go pretty hard, I think.
2: That that would sell out instantly.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. I'm excited about it. We should just get it. someone
2: to airbrush it. I'm excited about it.
0: Anyway, let's uh let's get into it.
2: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Enough buns for
2: today, mate. <laughs> if you guys could have any generation Corvette, what would it be?
0: Oh, second gen. Yeah, second Stingray. gen. Stingray for sure
2: is sick would you have like the original engine in it or do you do a different uh i like, would ls or something
0: no just original i it's weird I, I i'm not like one of those everything is sacred kind of guys you know yeah. uh the longer i work at donut the less i feel that way um, yeah but when it comes to the for something about the, the the c2 corvette that stingray is like i i'd want one as original as possible there's
2: I I really enjoyed the C8 we got. I think I would... I love the C2, and I think the Stingray is sick, but just for, you know, if I'm daily driving it, I would take the C8.
0: Yeah, C8 was pretty sick. All right. These days, it's impossible to think of the hot-rodding community without seeing a bow tie front and center on at least half the cars. The Chevy 350 small block was the rock that the church of car modding was built upon, or at least hot-rodding. But back in the early 1950s, that just wasn't the case. Those greaser guys in leather jackets were hardcore Blue Oval fans because Ford saw the value in moddable motors, and the Flathead V8 was their moneymaker. The Flathead V8 that Ford was producing was a real innovation back in the day. It was the birth of the monoblock engine block design. But because it was still the 1950s, basically the dark ages of car modding culture, that flathead still needed a lot of work. That's where the Nazi-fleeing Zora arkus duntov comes in. Before he started as an assistant engineer at Chevy, Zora was eyeballing the flathead and had some ideas of his own. He designed custom cylinder heads for the flathead V8 called the Ardun, Oh wow, which converted the block into an overhead valve configuration. This overhead valve design routed the exhaust more directly, keeping temperatures down and drivers happy. This is, that's, okay, just to like put some context as to why that's important. The flathead V8 had, its valves were in the engine block. I'm trying to like imagine how he accomplished this. You'd have to like plug the holes where the valves came in to convert it to an overhead design. That's super cool.
2: I'm I'm trying to understand what you're saying.
0: Okay, so like a flathead, it's called a flathead because mm-hmm. it's literally just a flat piece of like cast iron that's bolted on to where the, you know, this, the, the engine block, right? Yeah. But like normal, modern cylinder heads, like, you know, your entire valve train is on top of the yes. cylinder, like, right. So like the camshafts are in there usually, uh, and they're pressing, pressing the valve down into the combustion chamber in the engine block, right? Yeah. Okay. It's kind of opposite on a flathead engine. So you still have your like your engine block and cylinders and all that, but next to where the pistons are pumping up and down in the cylinders, you've also got your valves sitting like I think on top, right? And they're they're also going into the combustion chamber, the valves, but from the bottom from the engine block. Oh, okay. if that makes sense,
2: can you so visualize that? Yeah, now I'm understanding. Like that would be a feat of engineering.
0: Yeah, so now Zora is taking basically like a modern uh, cylinder head and he's replacing where the valves are going. Yeah, or yeah. where the valves are coming in. Um, that's pretty amazing. I want to know how he did that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the point is is that, like this sort of design, like I said, routes the, the exhaust can exit the combustion chamber more uh, easily, which increases airflow, which is what you want. It keeps temperatures down and overall gives you more power. And makes drivers more happy that's fun zora's overhead valve design was a hit and to celebrate the belgian moved to england where he helped to develop allard sports cars for the 24 hours of le mans in 1952 and 1953. under the hood of those cars was zora's old friend a ford flathead v8 after bolting on his invention he and the soon-to-be racing legend carol shelby raced the allard cars together and won more than half a dozen races. I did not know that they worked together,
1: dude. Cool. So, dude, it's when you start talking about this era yeah. of cars, it's like, oh, and then this, like, if they put it in a movie, you wouldn't believe it.
2: Yeah, and no. that's when Zora went to the starting line down in Riverside and met
1: Ken Miles,
2: and, <laughs> and like, it's like,
1: uh, it's like Walk Hard.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should do a walk hard with just yeah, racing with car
1: drivers. Yeah, That'd be great. Drive hard.
2: Drive oh, hard. dude. It's already written itself. Yeah. In
0: 1953, Zora returned to the U.S. At the New York Auto Show, he spotted the sleek, all-new 1953 Corvette on display. And like many, he found the car visually superb. But... As a racer and race mechanic, he was disappointed at what was hidden under the hood. The first-gen Corvette wasn't built like the models we know and love today. It was heavily inspired by the MG and other European sports cars, much like the one his wife used to flee the Nazis. Sure, it was more polished and streamlined, but under the hood sat a disappointing inline six-cylinder engine with three single carbs perched on top a two-speed power glide transmission crammed underneath. Zora had fallen in love with the curves, but knew the rest of the car needed serious work. So... (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that. (laughs) 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 Damaged goods under the hood. Oh, (laughs) my God. God. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, I mean, yeah, like the the Corvette had... Or Chevy had made the Corvette because all, all these GIs were coming home from Europe, and they're like, we... They had all fallen in love with these cars that they saw over there and probably took for joy rides over there. Mm -hmm. They were shipping some back, too. Yeah, we want something like this. And Chevy was like, okay, let's do it. Uh, So, yeah, he, he fell in love with the curves and took a job as an engineer at GM with the hopes of winding up on Team Corvette. Once he was on staff, he boldly wrote a letter to all of his bosses titled, Thoughts Pertaining to Youth hot rodders and chevrolet. I love that. Where he laid out exactly how Chevy would beat Ford into submission in the hot-rodding scene. In the letter, Zora argued that securing the lead in the high-performance game took more than a good motor. He waxed poetic about aligning chassis and engines while offering an aftermarket environment for modders to tinker around in. His bosses, surprisingly, took the letter to heart. They were wooed into allowing Zora to shoehorn a V8 into the 1955 Corvette, a first step in the journey towards the big block vets of the muscle car era. Zora was promoted to director of high-performance vehicles, a dream job for any car guy that involved two tasks, building custom fast cars and then taking those fast cars out to the track. Zora was living the life. He set records at Pike's Peak in a Bel Air, (laughs) He took a Corvette to Daytona and broke the flying mile record at 150 miles per hour. Introduced the Corvette to both fuel injection and four-wheel disc brakes, all in his first two years. And what was even more amazing was that Zora was just getting started. Man, back then,
1: Pike's Peak was dirt and Mm -hmm. rocks and probably not that well maintained. And Can you imagine doing it in a car that's barely (laughs) smaller than Nolan's Oldsmobile? (laughs) Yeah. That sounds like the dream job, though,
2: like for this dude, like Mm -hmm. that is just the perfect scenario for this guy to fall into.
1: The higher ups at Chevrolet were ecstatic with their new hire and ready to let Zora take the Corvette to the next level, but they weren't ready for just how next level he was willing to go. Zora had logged quite a few hours of track time in Corvettes and the severe cockpit heat problems were causing a ton of issues and discomfort. So... By 1957, he already had dreams of going mid-engine. Zora and fellow Chevy engineers Harold Krieger and Walt Zeschai started work on designing the Chevrolet Engineering Research Vehicle, also known as the Curve One. (laughs) Uh, The all-new design was also called the Hill Climber because Zora had plans to run the car back up Pikes Peak where he'd already set the production car record in 1955 in an enormous Chevy Bel Air. Uh, but we
2: all know that he really just wanted to go to that nice hotel at the base of Pike's Peak. Yeah, he and all, he
1: wanted Chevy to foot this, the bill. Yeah, all of this was because he loved that hotel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that curve one, stylistically spelled C E R V 1, so however you want to pronounce it, serve, dear, Would you serve, do serve, curve,
1: I think It might be serve. But I thought Whatever curve because he fell in love with the curves. Oh, That needed nice. a lot of work. Needed a lot of work. <laughs> on <about> it.
2: damn <laughs>
1: <laughs> But it wasn't all about peaks. The Hill Climber was aimed at competing with other Indy cars and was powered with an experimental 353 horsepower, 4.6 liter V8. That's more horsepower than the Corvette was making with a 5.7 liter 50 years later.
2: Wow, what happened to this engine?
1: Uh, I, I lost it. The <laughs> so three engineers had a list of features they weren't willing to sacrifice on, and they made that dream car a reality. There was a radical tube-framed, single-seat, open-wheel, independent rear suspension, mid-engine monster that they hoped would lead to what one day would wear the Corvette badge out on public roads. Unfortunately, Zora's dreams of making the curve or serve one a production car remain just a dream. The car was just too insane for 1950s America, as well as the boardroom full of old men who made the decisions at Chevrolet. To put one last nail in the mid-engine coffin, the car never even saw competition due to an Automobile Manufacturers Association ruling which banned auto manufacturers from participating in factory-backed racing programs in 1957. That's a reality that's hard to imagine today. Zora didn't let the band get to him. He kept innovating and designing. Part of his genius was that he turned failures into learning opportunities. The serve or curve one wound up as a guinea pig used to test crazy theories and experimental motors. Before it faded into history, Zora raced the car GM's Milford Proving Ground, setting a baffling average speed record of 206.1 miles per hour on the five-mile circular track. Jesus. That's that's amazing. Average speed.
0: Yeah, what? I mean, this thing, I mean, it's an open-wheel race car. Like, an Indy car is an appropriate kind of description. But, man, when you look at it, you're like, okay, yeah, that thing is fast as hell. Like, you could just tell.
1: I mean, what's the yeah. average speed of an F1 car? lap? Right. Depends now? on the track. On uh, a fast one.
0: Probably, like, 180. Yeah, dude, 206. Yeah, that's, that's quick. But I mean this is a this is a big old oval though, you know? Yeah. They mm-hmm. can just pin it the whole time.
2: Pin it. Pin uh. it. hawk it and get squirrely. Dude, this <laughs> thing rules.
0: Yeah. That's really cool. It looks like a hot wheel.
1: The the aerodynamics are so sick. This is my next daily, dude.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Even though some of the earliest car designs were technically mid engine. The design didn't achieve its full potential until the 1960s. Formula One racing engineers found endless advantages with the mid-engine platform, from weight distribution to aerodynamics and balance and ease of repair. Luckily, Zora already had a decade of experience building and racing them competitively. And just in case you don't know what we're talking about, uh, you've got a few different engine configurations. You've got front engine, where the engine is in the front under the hood. That's like most cars. And there's mid-engine. Uh, where the engine is in between the two axles, right? And usually they're behind the driver, but there's technically front mid-engine as well. Yeah, and then there's rear engine, like Porsche. Porsche is basically the only manufacturer. Uh, Alpina and the A110 has a rear engine, but that's kind of that's a deep cut. Um, yeah, so there you go: mid-engine, front-engine, rear-engine.
1: And that means that the engine is behind behind the rear axle. Then there's top and bottom engine, but we don't want to get into that. <laughs>
0: yeah, left and right engine. That's some crazy stuff. With the serve one serving R and D duties, Zora began constructing the serve two in 1961.
1: This is one of the most insane looking cars I've ever seen in my life. It, it looks, looks like... like
0: the Mach Five from Speed Racer. Yes,
1: uh-huh. it looks like yeah. Sonic
0: the Hedgehog
2: yeah i love i love that era where every single car manufacturer
1: made those style headlights mm-hmm. like those well, are there like was gt40 there's only like four types of bulbs <laughs> so you <laughs> yeah. had like a couple of round ones to choose yeah. from a couple of square ones to choose from
2: i'm talking about that shark the shark shaped yeah headlights mm-hmm. on like the gt40 and like the lamborghini and the uh, very aerodynamic ferraris yeah, yeah.
0: It all started with the motor that was currently bolted into the Serv 1, a 377 cubic inch aluminum V8. But this time he wanted those 500 ponies to push their power to all four wheels, just like the all wheel drive 1935 Bugatti T53 race cars that Zora loved when he was a kid. The chassis of the Serv 2 was stuffed full of lightweight titanium and came in just under 1400 pounds Thanks to Larry Shinoda and Tony Lapine, designers of the Porsche 924 and 928. And by the spring of 1964, the race-inspired engine, all-wheel drive setup, and futuristic chassis all combined to brake speeds of 212 miles per hour at the Milford Proving Grounds. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Meanwhile, Bunky Nudson... The general nice, manager of, of Chevrolet at the time was convinced that Zora had built him a GT40 killer to run at Sebring and Le Mans. They debuted to the serve two at the Formula One Grand Prix in Riverside, California, where Dan Gurney and Sterling <laughs> yes. Moss threw down competitive <laughs> demo laps in the car. That's sick.
2: Here we go. Get the I, cast I, back I, in yeah, here. This know, is the right? Marvel I universe.
0: Know. Yep. It was an eye-opening moment for competitors to see a major player like Chevrolet step suddenly and so competitively into their world. Hell and yeah. then Dale Earnhardt walked in. <laughs> yeah,
2: and- but he was just a busboy at the bar that they hung out.
0: <laughs> just a few months later, though, Chevy did what Chevy does, and they told Zora to pack up the prototype and send it back to Detroit. There just wasn't enough money in the bank to take on a whole new racing program. And by the late 1960s, the Serv 2 had replaced the Serv 1 as a guinea pig for the Corvette program. And once again, Zora was disappointed. Yes, he was still learning and growing, but the failures started to sting. Dude, imagine how different car history might be if the Serv 2 was like at the 64 Le Mans with the GT40 and Ferrari. Like a three-way fight, Mm -hmm. you know? That yeah. turns into a two-way fight between Ford and Chevy. Ah, what a missed it's opportunity. Just frustrating.
2: It's so frustrating to see him like succeed and then just get shut down.
0: Yeah, because there wasn't, quote-unquote, enough money. Meanwhile, General Motors has been like one of the biggest companies in the world for yeah. like, decades. they have money to spend. Yeah, they had money. Come on, son. Come on, son.
1: <laughs> Come on, son. <laughs> Chevy, on, son. my son.
0: You're my Hi. son, Chevy. Hi. You're my son, and I love you, Chevy.
1: Zora wasn't about to quit. Before the Serv 2's corpse was even cold, he was already showing off a new mid-engine Corvette design that he was desperate to get into the public's hands. Because, see, the public, people vote with their wallets. Okay? And he's sick of getting shut down behind the scenes by all these freaking suits. Yeah. So he's going to create a little thing called demand. This time it was dubbed the XP 882, and she was a beaut. Two prototypes were fitted with small block Chevys, with plans for dropping in some big blocks later. This thing's really cool looking.
2: Yeah, this looks like a Stingray.
1: Yeah, it looks like a um, it looks like a Lamborghini machine of the time.
2: Yeah, Un- unmistakably a Corvette though. This look- actually looks like a C4. Yeah, a little. I like it.
1: Yeah. The Chevy styling team put together a look that was fresh, bold, and edgy, but also classically Corvette-looking, just like Joe just said. Every team at Chevrolet from sales, styling, and engineering were on board with this new, wild direction for the Corvette and ready to get them into the hands of drivers. Given the amount of energy and excitement around the project, it was quite a shock when Chevy General Manager John DeLorean Killed the project. His stated reason for nixing the XP882 was his desire to refocus the company on making Corvettes even more profitable, utilizing all new and way cheaper Camaro chassis. So basically, he's like, all right, guys, we're not going to innovate. We're going to do the exact opposite. We're going to make the same car, but cheaper.
2: Look, I know I made my name by innovating and doing stuff... (laughs) (laughs) you know bending the rules but we're not as long as i'm in charge we're not gonna break any rules we're not gonna do any risks that's pretty pretty (laughs) freaking in
1: 1971 ford acquired an 84 percent stake in exotic car manufacturer de tomaso with plans to rebrand their all-new pantera as their own and zora knew he had to strike while the mid-engine iron was hot Zora went behind DeLorean's back and showed Bill Mitchell, head of design at General Motors, and Alex Mayer, Chevy's chief of engineering, the XP882, that had been mothballed. Mitchell and Myar fell in love (laughs) with the mid-engine car instantly and told Zora to prep it to be shown at the 1969 New York City Auto Show to compete with the upcoming De tommaso Pintera announcement Ford had planned. This is exciting. They coated yeah. the concept car in silver paint and created a fake interior with just days to go. Then they shipped the car to New York, where it was a massive hit with fans, car journalists, and especially photographers, who plastered images of the wild ride all over every magazine cover in the industry.
0: It's so funny that like this stuff just comes together so quickly, or it, yeah. it could back then. It was a little more nimble, it sounds like. Uh-huh. like Just like slapping the interior together with days I mean, that's, what
2: they, that's what gm did when they sent the hummer
1: basically yeah. right that's that actually like a fake fair interior? That's,
0: that's well no the interior you could sit in it and all that it was totally cool but it was like the
1: you could sit in it but none of the buttons were real you couldn't roll up any of the windows They're, everything was like 3d printed and spray painted
0: <laughs> the uh the drivetrain was uh fake too yeah but weren't they saying they took it on like a trail like a couple days before and they had to clean up the whole car I don't know maybe they just like hobbled it out to take pictures well no because the guy, the guy was saying that uh, he spent like two days having to clean mud out of tons of crevices everywhere no so, that's what he know. was
2: he had diarrhea he didn't want to be
0: graphic uh, right. about it he was it, a very but... nice guy I don't want to th- imply that he had diarrhea Uh auto- <laughs> but, but so,
1: yeah <laughs> uh, auto journalists had diarrhea for the new Corvette <laughs> <laughs> Word diarrhea. They went insane writing long stories about how the XP882 would be the next generation Corvette, which is exactly what Zora wanted. They praised the parts bin, but very clever powertrain setup. Under the silver body of the XP882 was a transverse mounted 400 cubic inch V8 coupled to a turbo 400 transmission. Nice. The wheels and suspension were cobbled from existing production parts, keeping costs low. Zora had learned how to play the game.
0: That's the name <laughs> of the game.
1: DeLorean was embarrassed. He also felt a bit betrayed. Zora had gone over his head and straight into the loving arms of the public and press. DeLorean was forced to approve the funds to develop a big block XP 882 after the overwhelmingly positive reception. But as we all know, we didn't get a mid engine Corvette until like 2019? 2020. Uh, I think we got, we saw it, we saw one in, uh, in 2019. I, so that's yeah. why I get confused. We were the first ones to get one, is all I'm saying.
2: Yeah, let's just say they had to clean a lot of mud out of the yeah. C8 they <laughs> sent yeah. us.
1: all eaten crawfish right before that. <laughs> and we all got diarrhea. <laughs> we, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so we know that obviously the story didn't end there because we didn't get a mid-engine corvette until 2020 so what happened Well, delorean and zora were having their little quibble the big man at general motors ed cole was making deals that neither man was in on hmm. just when the two had everything ironed out cole came in the room with his purchase order to license the development of a chevy branded wankel rotary engine and he wanted the first one to be a high-performance version that would live in the heart of the Corvette.
0: That seems um, like a not good idea. <laughs> yeah. Does no one talk
1: at GM? What's going on? Yeah, what the hell, dude? Oh, What like a uh, out-of-touch boss move. Yeah. It's like, no, dude. Uh,
0: <laughs> oh,
1: dude. Uh. Ed Cole walks in with the rotary engine. He's like, you guys got to use this. And after Zora was done being very upset, he ordered one of the head of R and D engineers, Gib, Gib. <laughs> he ordered one of the. Why do you always get these names? <laughs> he ordered one of the head R and D engineers, Gib Hoofstadter Oh yeah, pretty good. To tackle the rotary problem and make it a reality, he even handed over the keys to the XP eight eighty two. So. It could be taken to the chop shop and fitted with the experimental four-rotor engine uh that wow. had been floating around Chevy engineering meetings. Rob Dom. I mean four-rotor is pretty cool. Dude,
0: if they had Rob Dom. Oh yeah, Rob would there, hook that up, dude. Yeah.
1: Then the Corvette would be a rotary.
0: <laughs> but this is so funny because they're usually like the, you know, you usually hear the story as like, oh yeah, like the whole narrative of the like when the C eight was coming out, there's a ton of articles about the timeline of the of the mid-engine legacy and it's always Uh like yeah one of them was going to be rotary isn't that crazy but now it like makes a lot more sense it doesn't like come out of left field it's like okay they were already working on one that wasn't going to be rotary and then Mm. uh you know
1: some dumb someone's like yeah now let's just do all the hard stuff right away
0: yeah 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 so it's that makes a lot more sense
1: yeah the 60s had ended as they always do, with 69, nice. And the 70s were in full swing. Zorro was begging to make the mid-engine Corvette a reality, but reality wasn't working out too well for him. Cue oil crisis music.
0: We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors.
1: the GM team now had to weather the first Arab oil embargo and the 1970s recession, which floated in a period of stagnation and interest rates of almost 20%. Corvette sales dropped 50% in the early 70s and Ed Cole was waving around his stupid rotary build sheets <laughs> in the hopes of paving a new road to the future. None of it looked good for Zora. It was a perfect storm of reasons not to turn an experimental project into a reality. By 1975, Zora Arkus Dunkov was exhausted. He retired from GM and left Detroit without ever achieving his one big dream, putting a mid-engine Corvette into the hands of enthusiasts.
0: That's a bummer, man. Yeah.
1: Dude, that's a freaking sad.
2: <laughs> it's it's cool that we still know his name, though, and that he's like still a legend despite not having any of his projects come to fruition.
1: hmm Yeah, he's like a an experimental designer in detroit like he's like what's like a music equivalent salvador dolly's yeah he's like the salvador dolly of cars i want to make the zora story but make it like real disney and have animals <laughs> play all the characters
2: oh nice i've, I've already what? started looking at what he looks like to see if i could cast him and what, i think what animal does he look like um some kind of like sharp clever fox maybe Yeah,
1: like a fox
0: i was thinking
2: Yeah, but I think if if it ever was a live action movie, I think John Berenthal could play him.
0: He does look like John Berenthal. But John John's already playing playing uh, Lee Iacocca. Iacocca. We cast
1: John Berenthal in every movie.
0: I know. We we only know four: (laughs) Timothy
2: Chalamet, Chris Evans. John Berenthal
1: is gonna be like if we ever make this like super walk hard movie. We have to have John Berenthal play like fifteen characters.
0: Yeah. That would save money on casting.
1: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Okay, guys, what if we animate it like a Disney movie, but then in 20 years, we do the live action version, (laughs) which is just... On ice skates? No, like the Lion King or Mulan.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. The 1970s were not kind to performance cars, and it was probably for the best that someone who lived and breathed roaring ponies like Zora Arkus Duntov stepped down. His replacement, Dave McClellan, oversaw the slow, sad decline of what was once a monster of a 500-horsepower manual muscle car into an anemic automatic transmission lump. We all know the story. Emissions regulations detuned the boulevard beasts that enthusiasts loved and neutered them into wheezing puppies. Gas prices soared, and Corvette owners were getting too old to drive sports cars and wanted Cadillacs instead. One side effect of this was Corvette buyers choosing automatic over manual in massive numbers. By the late 70s, more autos were being produced than sticks. America's beloved chrome bumpers were also being killed through increasingly stringent safety standards. By the time they were replaced with safer plastic, the once great but now pathetic vet was making a Honda Fit-esque 165 horsepower through a shockingly bad, three-speed turbo-hydromatic automatic transmission. During these truly dark times, former mid-engine and Zora ally Bill Mitchell took a look back at past designs and decided that the only road out of the awful 70s garbage fire was through the mythical mid-engine Corvette they'd been chasing all along. Mitchell made a few calls and then pulled the XP-895 out of storage. The XP-895 was the rotary Frankenstein that Zora had tasked Gib Huffstadter, to build out of the XP882's ashes.
2: A lot of, uh, you're getting through this minefield of sentences right now. (laughs) It's pretty well.
0: It's hard. I'm sweating. (laughs) Mitchell ordered the rotary motor to be thrown in the trash and grabbed a 300 horsepower Chevy V8 off the parts shelf. Mitchell loved Euro mid-engine sports cars and saw the newly dusted off XP895 as a spiritual competitor to the Countach and the Ferrari Dino. Mitchell dubbed the gull-wing beast the AeroVet. He shipped it off to the auto show circuit, and once again, enthusiasts and the media lost their minds over the idea that a mid-engine Corvette was coming. Rumors circulated throughout the 1970s, and then it was officially greenlit. The AeroVet was set to become the C4 in 1980. The fourth generation Corvette.
2: I told you, I called it. Looks like a C4.
0: Dave McClellan who decided that Zora's dreams never really mattered, put a halt to the AeroVet before it even got going. Much to the dismay of Bill Mitchell and everyone who ever wanted to buy Corvette, McClellan gave a plethora of reasons why he killed the AeroVet. The chief amongst them was that he didn't see the mid-engine platform as being performance-oriented enough. What? Come on, son! <laughs> come, on, come on, son! Come on, son! You're my son, on, Dave Chevy, McClellan! son! Come on, son! Come on, son! Come on, on, my son, Chevy. He believed that front engine was the only way to go when it came to sports cars. Oh, son. uh, Wow, son. Come on, son. son.
1: Come on, (laughs) son. Wow, son. 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 Come on. For more than 30 years, Corvette designers and engineers toiled away in back rooms, cranking out mid-engine prototypes that were swiftly killed by the bean counters. Overall, they mothballed nine different mid-engine prototypes. Nolan, didn't you do a wheelhouse that said that's not exactly how that works? Um, like, like, very often. Like, it's not very often that, like, it's like accountants being like, you can't make it.
0: Oh, right. Yeah. What episode was that? SVT. Yeah, that's right. So, with the SVT episode, good, good pull, James. Uh, the SVT Ford episode that we did, it, you know, it's the, the accountants are, a, are a, a good scapegoat. It's fun to pin blame on them. I mean, we definitely have a lot in the past um Mm -hmm. but really a a lot of times it comes down to like product timelines not matching up and a lot of other things that are just outside of the the design team's control that leads to the end of these fun projects you know
2: yeah a lot of things a lot of things have to align for a car a new car to come out
0: a staggering amount of stuff and it's not always
2: one factor Yeah, yeah
1: leave the accountants alone yeah they count so you don't have to well it's oh, like nice. when
0: you know <laughs> it's um it's like when people last year were like asking us like when's the next season of high low is coming out. It's like we want we wanted to make high low. We just like everything was out yeah. of our control, so we couldn't do it, you know, but now like we finally are.
1: Comes out at the end of the summer.
0: Yeah, so it'll be there.
1: Post Zora though, only one of the concepts rose to the top and nearly secured the Corvette name. It was the mid-80s, and pretty much the only cool cars were coming out of Italy. But those designers in the U.S. were still all hopped up on Coke and big dreams, and they wanted to compete. They called their dream the Corvette Indy, named after Harrison Ford's character in Indiana Jones.
2: Whoa, this looks like if a Camaro had a baby with, like a catfish had a baby with an NSX. Does it have big
0: old whiskers?
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i don't like this (laughs) too much glass i think i've seen this car so many times i don't like it i don't like this like era
0: i like the rear end a lot i don't like the front very much
1: Mm. yeah
0: it's very cyberpunk
1: yeah it's like it's
0: like dated future yeah yeah for sure
2: the only the only car that can pull this off is the ford probe like this style Mm. of like futuristic, but also curved.
1: <laughs> the probe, the example of... <laughs> so yeah,
2: I, I mean, it's a it's a high watermark for all cars.
1: GM design vice president Chuck Jordan and staffed GM designer Tom Peters put together a design for a Corvette body with a super lean, supercar shape that looked like a Testarosta hitched up with the WS6 Trans Am. Jordan and Peters saw the body as the perfect home their all-new cutting-edge 80s motor, plus with the scissor doors that incorporated the windows and roof, no one had to worry about little problems like cockpit space or window motors. The heart of the Corvette Indy was an innovative 2.65-liter V8 with a pair of Spinny Boys that put down more than 600 horsepower to the rear Oof. wheels. That seems Oof. cool. 2.6-liter V8 is sick. That yeah, probably yeah, sounds awesome. Especially with those turbos, yeah. But the motor wasn't the only showstopper. The sleek body of the Indy was an aeronautical mass of carbon fiber and Kevlar that was formed over a bespoke monocoque chassis. (laughs) GM hit up Lotus and added their active suspension to the mix while also incorporating an all-wheel drive system that sported four-wheel steering. It was the most innovative thing Chevy had done since they introduced the 350 small block in 1967. How many cars at this time were just like hitting up Lotus at this time and being like, hey, can you figure out our suspension? DeLorean did it. Uh, (laughs) A bunch of people did it.
2: Yeah. I mean, he was a, Colin Chapman was a genius. He's a genius, mate. He's
1: a genius, mate. We'll take it to Colin. He's a genius. Uh, Add lightness, (laughs) take off weight. What was it?
2: Yeah. Add lightness.
1: Remove weight and add lightness.
2: Yeah. I love that. That's so cheeky, that dude's so cheeky, man. Wonder what he's up to now. Uh, we'll talk about it after the show, <laughs> dude. He hasn't he hasn't called me like in a couple years. I wonder if he's all right.
1: Within six weeks, the Indy went from clay slab to show car, and the bow tie bigwigs ordered it to be displayed at the 1986 Detroit Auto Show, where once again everyone fell in love with the look and performance. The bosses loved the crowd reaction and once again, the mid-engine concept was greenlit for production. This time though, they were totally serious. Believe (laughs) us. (laughs) But once again, at the last minute, the beautiful idea was slaughtered before it ever saw the light of day. It was a cruel twist of fate. They changed the name to the Serve 3 and parked it at the GM Heritage Center alongside the picked over carcasses of the Serve 1 and Serve 2 which were mostly there to remind everyone how much they let Zora down over the years.
0: Dang, burn. Wow.
1: (laughs) Uh, A lot of subversive writing in this, I love it. As years passed, Chevy did continue to innovate with front engine, rear drive setups that had become a tradition with the Corvette from C4 to C6. Cars were getting better, and the dark days of the 70s and 80s were gone. The Corvette was fun again and won tons of awards while boosting sales numbers. The higher-ups had pretty much forgotten about the mid-engine concept along their path to perfecting the flagship Corvette's performance. Corvettes were getting so good, it was getting hard to justify tinkering around with a whole new platform. And When Zora and his predecessors were working in the background to realize their dreams, GM bosses would smack them down and say that the front-engine platform was doing great, and there's plenty of room for improvement. But after the stagnation of the C six ended, a new chief engineer for the Corvette, Taj Uchter Barely even noter, took over (laughs) duties of releasing the next generation. There was a floating question of where does it all go now? Where does it go, (laughs) Taj? Tadge. (laughs) Tadge Uchter. In the mid-2000s, government-appointed accountants were inspecting GM's books after a probe into some of their reported earnings, and they found something very interesting. Ooh. The Washington analysts discovered something GM should have known already. The Corvette was one of the corporation's only sources of true profit. No way. As soon as
0: the- uh, Dude, no way, dude. Dude. No who, way, dude. Dude. Freaking- washi- no way, dude.
1: Washington bean counters, dude. Washington <laughs> dude. bean counters.
0: <laughs> That's where the best of the best go to count beans. Yeah.
1: I just want to go to Washington one day and count all the biggest beans. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as the analysis was finished, Yukter <laughs> got a Euk-der. call from his bosses and was told it was full steam ahead on a new C7 after he'd been keeping the c C6 on life support for years due to lack of funding. Yukter had a choice to make. Take a leap of faith and bring a mid-engine Corvette to the market or redesigned the traditional tried-and-true front-engine platform for an easy win. Well, Euchter took coward's way out and developed what turned out to be an amazing (laughs) performance car. (laughs) One of the best. (laughs) The front-engine C7 Corvette was one of the most well-received vets or sports cars in history, and the performance numbers were better than people had hoped for. Uh, Way better. And Yukter returned to the top of the podium with each new special model, like the Z06, the Grand Sport, and the absolutely insane 755 horsepower ZR1. Yeah, but
2: that is crazy.
1: While Yukter was getting high fives all around for his little home run with the C7, he was secretly building Zora's dream car <gasps> behind Closed doors. Nice.
2: Tadge, we, oh, we wrote him oh, off. We wrote him off
0: like a bean t- cutter. Tadge t-
1: came through, dude. Always. Tadge.
0: <laughs> oh, dude. I'm sad, dude. <laughs>
1: Tadge is like, like Han Solo, like a, like a kind of salty you know, anti-hero guy. And you think yeah. he abandoned the quest, but then like at the last minute, comes back and is just like, whew, Pew, pew, yeah. pew, pew, pew. And you're like, Touch! like a sandwich, like yeah, a
2: classic yeah, yeah. Samwise Gamgee, yeah, help you out in the end. For yeah, sure. I think
1: Han Solo the, the best. <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: I don't know why I tried to improve it. It's definitely Han
1: Solo, yeah. it's not Samwise. Oh, you know, who's like, like that's like one of the coolest characters ever. But what if we took Rudy and made him real short? <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> He's cool too. We'll put him like up against some really tall people so he looks even shorter than he actually is. Yeah.
1: (laughs) We'll be right back with more of this story, but first a word from our sponsors.
0: While Taylor Swift was blowing up on the radio with (laughs) Shake It Off and the C seven was winning automobile of the year and performance car of the year, Car and Driver was once again predicting that 2015 would be the year a mid engine Corvette was released. And guess what, guys? They were wrong. But, by this point, Yukter had a green light on the mid-engine project, and this was different from the green lights of the past. The recessions were somewhat over, there was no gas crisis, and Dodge was selling Hellcats and Demons all day long. The time to release a mid-engine Corvette had arrived. Chevy wanted the prototype to be a secret, but auto magazines and paparazzi were always watching. So, to keep the project under wraps, they nicknamed it Blackjack, and imported a Holden Maloo pickup truck that they used to build the bones of the C8's platform. This was no regular souped up ute. Uh, the pictures of this thing are amazing. It's so funny. Yeah. The Maloo was chopped to bits. So basically, it's like a modern El Camino, mm-hmm. like a sedan in the front, truck bed in the back, okay? Uh, the Maloo was chopped up to bits and given a huge wing, Rocket Bunny esque flared fenders, mm-hmm. and the front end of a tweaked C7. The weird choice of platform didn't fool anybody. And the minute it was spotted on a test track, everyone knew exactly what they were looking at.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess they had to use the ute to hide the, like in an attempt to hide the engine.
0: Yeah. So they're like, oh, what's that truck over there? Oh, it's just hauling an engine around in the back,
1: (laughs) 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 around the track really fast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it looks ridiculous. It's hilarious. Yeah. With the constant fear of being cancelled, Team Corvette kept developing blackjack. (laughs) Photos of camouflage prototypes kept popping up, and they kept thinking the next year would be the year for the new mid-engine Corvette. But the engineers kept trudging on, but now with a bit more hope. A few hand-built prototypes turned into a fleet of more than 100 fully developed vehicles with Italian supercar proportions, powered by a small-block 6.2-liter, 495-horsepower V8, sitting behind the driver's seat that powered the new model to 0-60 to in just under three seconds. Every day that passed made engineers more hopeful that Blackjack was going to become the C8. In April of 2019, Chevy made an official announcement that the mid-engine Corvette was about to become a reality. And while they hadn't revealed the design yet, the idea was being made public. And on July 18th, 2019, 60 years in the making, Chevrolet unveiled the first mid-engine Corvette. Enthusiasts went buck wild, but they were still a bit hesitant. Corvette fans held their breath all the way until February 3rd of 2020, when production officially began on the C eight. When did we shoot that episode of Bumper to Bumper? July
2: 2019.
0: That was in July?
2: Yeah. Cause I always look back at our like views and there's it's just like pretty consistent and then just boom. boom.
0: Yeah. For the C8 was, reveal. We were like one of the first people to get that Corvette to shoot, which was like mm-hmm. so awesome. Yeah. Um, and that video did so well for us, man. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was amazing. Automotive journalists lost their minds and showered the C8 with awards. Buyers wanted to get their hands on the C8 as soon as possible, but there's a six-month waiting list to bring one home. It was everything that Zora Arkus Duntov had been dreaming of. And it was the exact reaction from fans he'd been predicting since the 1950s. Chevy isn't resting on their laurels either. In homage to the Corvette's biggest fan and greatest patron saint, they are creating the Zora. A hybrid monster expected to make a thousand horsepower to the wheels. And while the C8 might be a little different than anything Zora imagined, it's hard to think that he'd be anything but pleased. And that's the story. Yep, that C8 kicks ass. And while yeah. it took a long time to get here, I think it came at the right time. I don't know. It's just like they nailed. They, it, it's so good. They just nailed it first time out. That yeah. If it if they had done it any earlier, I don't know if it would have been the same. You know.
2: It's so cool. It looks awesome. It drives amazing. It's really fun. I, I. It made me a Corvette dude.
0: Yeah, I am looking forward to the refresh. It's a little sharp right now. It's a little pointy. The rear end in particular, I don't think looks very good, but none of that really matters when you're driving it. It it truly is amazing. Uh, and I'm not even like a Chevy guy. I'm a Mopar. I'm a Mopar guy saying that. Okay. Whoa,
2: dude. That's as a Mopar guy, that's so big of you too. Yeah.
0: I'm being the bigger man right now, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well,
2: are you going to take your Calvin peeing on Chevy sticker off Ooh.
0: your car now? It's going to be hard to get that tattoo removed. That's for sure. <laughs> Anyway, that's the story of the mid-engine Corvette. Thank you very much for listening. We got some reader emails to read right now. Yeah. All right. Well, Mitch writes to us, Hello, Mr. Pumphrey, Mr. Sykes, and the elusive Mr. Weber. My name is Mitch, and I live in the southern part of England, and I have a question about the popularity of different cars in the U.S. of A. Over here, hot hatches are the cars to have, whether it's a 15-year-old Renault Clio, a Mini a Corsa or a VW of some description or a brand new Golf or Polo GTI or a Toyota Yaris GR, everyone has owned and loves them. I suppose similarly to trucks over your way. So what I'm saying is, do you find people love hot hatches in the US or not? Nah? As judging by the podcast in the US, everyone either wants a Japanese import truck or muscle car. Um, I'd say hot
1: hatches are pretty popular here. I do think that drifting made them like I think at the in the 90s and early 2000s like hot hatches were basically what import guys built yeah and then drifting happened so everyone got rear-wheel drive cars but I do Mm. think that like fast civics and uh Volkswagens and stuff are gonna come back in a big way and
2: like uh I see a decent amount of like Ford Focuses here Mm -hmm. like RS and STs yeah I, I see less RSs but STs a lot yeah. I love I love hot hatches. I think we at Donut got burnt out on them a little bit. So we stopped talking about them as much, but we do we love them.
0: I mean, I I love the the Focus and Fiesta STs are like some of my favorite cars. They're just so good to drive. Um I will say it depends on where you live though. Like mm-hmm. in the city, yeah, hot hatches are dope because like parking sucks and yeah. you want to have something that you can drive really f- Like you can have a lot of fun with, but also like put a TV in if you're moving or whatever. Mm -hmm. But like out in like more rural areas, it really is a lot of trucks, a lot of trucks and muscle cars.
2: Yeah. It's kind of weird because like America could be five different countries. Uh Uh-huh. And so it's kind of weird to paint it with a broad paintbrush. Um, It definitely depends on what area you live in. And a lot of people live in rural areas and that's uh-huh. where trucks are more popular that's where suvs are more popular but it, yeah in this in, in like a san francisco or a boston where streets are smaller and parking is <sighs> shitty then hot hatches you can see a lot of them for sure i want to give a shout out before we go to uh an australian friend uh ben Geds. i hope, I, hope Geds. I said that ben, ben Geds, Geds, like ben and Geds. Geds. <laughs> Bean Geeds? No. Uh, he sent, <laughs> after our Peking to Paris episode, he sent me this. I think it's a historical reenactment. And they actually did it in like period correct cars. So I'm excited to. And that's a DVD. It, it says that's it a, has, a series yeah. of
0: DVDs.
1: It says it has yeah. incidental nudity in it. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go, read,
0: read, the, read the rating on the cover, Joe. Uh,
2: it's, it's rated PG for mild coarse language and brief incidental nudity. <laughs> So I'm excited to uh, watch the, the nudity part of nudity. it and throw the rest of it away. I'm, I
0: am I want <laughs> this next season of Hilo to also include some brief incidental nudity as well. I think that'd really <laughs> elevate the show. Uh-huh. Yeah, we'll figure it out. All right, but he also great.
2: gave me this juice box
0: too. So, oh yeah, keep it uh, juice, man. Keep
2: it juice, Ben Geds. Keep it juice, Ben thank Geds. Thank you. Thank you for your present. All
0: right. I, I, again, I just want to thank everybody for listening to the show. Um, your support really means a lot and uh just feeling feeling good about good about our fans and good about the show
2: yeah tell your friends and this is going to come out after father's day but tell your dad about our podcast i'm sure he'll love it Yeah,
0: tell your dad about it
1: tell your friends about it because word of mouth is really how podcasts are still asked and shared
0: so and word of mouth is a great album by Ludacris.
1: yeah oh and yeah on, and on that bombshell <laughs> Mm-hmm. Follow Nolan at Nolan J. Sykes on social media. Follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. Follow me at James Pumphrey. Follow Donut at Donut Media.
0: And if you'd like to email the show, you can email us at passgas at donutmedia.com with your questions, complaints, or compliments. I want to hear more complaints. How about that? Yeah, I want
1: more complaints. Give me yeah. some more corrections.
0: Yeah. Write some, talk some Give, it, give talk us some that heat, man. Give us some heat. Give
1: us some heat, Daddy. You want the smoke? We want the smoke. <laughs> <laughs>